Acts chapter 4. Just a reminder, this Sunday, the 24th, try to be on time. It's going to be a special service. Going to do something a little bit different this Sunday. Yes, sir. No, I can't tell you. Can't tell you. It's a secret. Um, like I said, too, good Sunday to maybe invite somebody to come with you. All right. I want to talk tonight, before we get into Acts chapter 4, about Cod. Cod is a fish that is in much demand all over the world. And years ago, when they were trying to ship cod out of the northeast to get it to other places, the first thing they tried to do was to sort of vacuum pack it and freeze it. And they found that when the cod arrived, that it had lost all of its freshness and flavor. So then they decided maybe that what we need to do is to pack the cod in salt water and send it that way. And they found out that even in salt water, uh, the cod still arrived not only flavorless, but it was a little on the mushy side because it had been packed in the water. Finally, someone came up with this odd now brilliant idea, to pack the cod alive in a tank with its number one enemy, a catfish, and ship it that way. And they found that though the whole time the catfish was chasing the cod around the tank, that every last time the cod would arrive to its destination, it would arrive fresh and full of flavor. Now, I give you that story tonight for this reason. I think you'll see the parallel to this in Acts chapter 4. We are going to enter into a section of the book of Acts where the church, God's people, are now facing opposition. For the very first time. And we don't even know all the reasons in the mind of God of why he chose to place his church, his people, in the midst of a hostile environment. But we do know from the book of Acts that there are some reasons and some purposes for why God did this that are clearly evident from the book of Acts, and from other passages of Scripture as well. See, one of the things that we learn here, beginning in Acts chapter 4, is even though God allowed opposition to His people, He allowed His people to be in a hostile environment, rather than always a friendly, welcoming environment, was that even though they were being opposed, their witness was strong, and people were coming to know the Lord in spite of the opposition. 
Second, we see in this passage of Scripture that these people, even though they were being opposed, were being drawn closer to God through this experience. Instead of everything going smoothly and being in a friendly, welcoming environment, by being in this hostile environment, it caused God's people to draw closer to Him. And then finally we see, it also caused God's people to draw closer to one another. Instead of being out there on their own, trying to navigate the opposition, they were pulled together to sort of fight this common enemy together. And so that's what we see taking place here in Acts chapter 4. One other thing before we move into this tonight is that we see in Acts chapter 4 something that we have seen throughout the history of the church and we even see today, and that is that much of the opposition to the church and God's people actually comes from those who are religious. Those who are of the religious establishment. Those who live by rules rather than most of the time by a relationship in Jesus Christ. Mainly because many times we don't fit into their system or their set of rules. Which is what we see happening here in Acts chapter 4. So the next time you come to Acts chapter 4 or you even turn to the book of Acts, I'm sure one of the first things you'll think about is the codfish story from Pastor Jeff. With that said, let's move on. In Acts chapter 4, let's look at some of the key things here from this chapter. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the commander of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, angry because they were teaching the people and announcing in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But again, many of those who had listened to the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. One of the first things, again, I want us to see here is, why does God allow His people, the church, to be in a hostile environment rather than a friendly, welcoming environment? Well, one of the things that we see here is, in spite of the opposition, in spite of the pressure, in spite of the intimidation, in spite of the interrogation, the church continues to grow. It's almost like the more Satan... And the more uh, those opposed to Christ and to His Word try to muzzle the church and stamp out the message of Jesus Christ being alive, the more it grows. And I hope that we, as God's people, can take encouragement from that. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No matter what comes against it, It's going to be turned around and God's going to use it to continue to make progress rather than to go backwards. We talked about this Sunday from Romans 8. It's one of the reasons why Paul said we're more than conquerors. We have complete victory through Jesus Christ. And and one of the things that that verse teaches that I really didn't even touch on Sunday was 
that God understands something that we need to be reminded of many times in our life because we don't like to face opposition. We don't like to have to overcome things and face obstacles and challenges and, and in a sense, go through them or go over them. We would rather have just that easy road where everything lays out there in front of us. But one of the things God understands way more deeply than sometimes we do is that there's something very fulfilling very satisfying, very rewarding, even very honoring when we overcome something. When we can beat something, when we can be victorious, when we can head out there on the battlefield and instead of something just being laid out very easy for us, we've got to fight for something. But again, obviously, with the Lord's help and support and strength, we are able to overcome. There's something that, that is, again, fulfilling and satisfying that, uh, about that that you could never get if everything just came easy to us. If, if there was never any opposition, never any impediment, never any obstacle in our life, if everything just laid out there real smooth, we would lose that feeling even and the reward and the satisfaction of, of seeing something in front of us and being able, again, obviously with the Lord's help, to conquer it and overcome it. And that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 4. One of the other things, obviously, then we learn as Christians from this is this. That even those who are trying to faithfully live for the Lord, everything's not going to go easy. In fact, what Acts is reminding us of is when God is at work, when, when, when the gospel's making progress, when God's working in people's lives, there's probably going to be pushback. Either from some kind of human entity like we see here or some satanic opposition or something, but the enemy's just not going to let, you know, the progress of God and the work of God go on without some kind of pushback. So you and I can take heart when we're doing the work of God that even though we may be doing what God wants us to, that there's obstacle and opposition and challenge and impediment because that's pretty standard in the Word of God. And it certainly was standard here. And I don't think we can appreciate where the opposition was coming from to these first followers of Jesus. Because let's remember something, and we're going to see this a little bit even further on. This was the religious hierarchy of Israel. In fact, in Israel, the only thing that I would compare this to is in our way of thinking in America even, on a non-religious level, but to have the power that they did, this would have been a combination of the Senate of our United States government and the Supreme Court altogether. That's what the Sanhedrin were. They were 70 men who basically ruled Israel. And these are the people that are coming against the early followers of Christ, seizing them and telling them, you can't continue to tell people Jesus is alive. And obviously we know why. They're the ones that stirred the crowds up to kill him and to cry, crucify him, crucify him. They don't want 
people going around saying Jesus is alive. And like we said last week, though, one of the great witnesses of the early church was proving that Jesus is alive by the way they're living and by what they're proclaiming. And let me also say this, one other sort of side. If the enemies of Christ could have in any way once and for all, put to rest that Jesus Christ was alive and had not risen from the dead, this would have been the opportunity to do so. This would have been the time in history when it just got started for for those that did or were behind the crucifixion of Jesus to produce His body, to bring forth witnesses, to once and for all, for all of history, say, that's just not true. And if they couldn't do it, the most powerful religious organization in Judaism and Israel 2,000 years ago when it happened, then obviously as time goes on, it gets less and less to where anyone could do it either. So this is what we see. The church is going public. They are not being muzzled by others. And I realize we live in a a world today where, you know, even like where you guys work many times, you got to be careful about what you say and what you talk about. I get that. You know, God's people have always, you know, There's always been that attempt to muzzle, intimidate, quiet the witness for Jesus Christ. And I think we have to be maybe a little bit more creative, but we also have to be a little bit more bold. Just like they were in Acts. And not be so intimidated by the culture and the world in which we live. May we pay a price for our witness just like they did? Absolutely. And listen, there's nothing wrong again with even, like I said, being creative. You may, you know, be in a position where you would get fired from your job if you, you know, shared Christ at work, but that wouldn't prevent you from asking a coworker that you thought was very open to the gospel to have a cup of coffee with you off-site after work on your time and their time. They can't do anything with you for that private conversation. So we may have to be a little bit more creative in our witness, but we should never stop witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ. God called us to be witnesses. And we see that here, even in the word announcing in verse 2, means to publicly proclaim and publish, to be a herald, to be a town crier. They weren't, you know, ashamed to say, Jesus is alive. And that's why they were getting in trouble. See, they were not only angry, displeased, worked up, lathered up, that they were teaching the people. We're going to get to that in a moment. But they were also upset that they were announcing in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So notice what happens. On the next day, verse 5, their rulers, elders, experts in the law came together in Jerusalem. As I said, This would have been called the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. I like to call them the Grand Poobahs, if you will, or the Big Muckamucks. But again, we can't appreciate how normally 
This group, especially all banded together, would have been a very intimidating group to stand before. And yet we're going to see how the Holy Spirit of God living within these early followers of Jesus have transformed them and given them a courage and boldness to stand up to the religious leaders of Israel. And again, let's not forget that one of them is Peter, the same guy who was cowering just a few weeks earlier, who was denying the Lord, who was saying, I don't even know the Lord, to a little girl now is standing up in front of the Senate and the Supreme Court combined of Israel and basically giving it to them. On the next day, they came. Verse 6, Annas, the high priest, was there. Caiaphas was there. John was there. Alexander was there. Others who were members of the high priest family, they were all there. And after making Peter and John stand in their midst, they began to inquire, by what power or by what name did you do this? And I want you to notice that in this context, really power and name sort of mean the same thing. If you do something in the name of someone, it's by his authority, by his power that they're doing it. And so they're saying, look... And notice, they're not denying that this miracle that we talked about in chapter 3 was done. They're asking the question, by what power, by what authority did you do this? And I want you to notice now the response of Peter and the others. Peter, and here's the key, filled with the Holy Spirit. There it is. And remember, that word filled means to swell. It also means to burn. He is filled up with the Holy Spirit, exactly what Jesus predicted. And and speaking of Jesus' predictions about waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, and then you shall be witnesses. Jesus never expected his followers to do any witnessing, any work for him, any ministry, apart from the filling of the Holy Spirit, just like today. But let's also remember other predictions of Jesus. He had prepared his followers for this very time. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over again in different settings and different instances, Jesus was always warning his followers, there will come a day where you will stand before those who will throw you into the prison, who will seize you, who will bring you before their councils. You will wonder, what should we say? And that's when Jesus said, don't worry about what you will say. I will give you the words when you need those words through my Holy Spirit. And blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted for for my name's sake. For you will be blessed, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11 and 12. So over and over again, Jesus had prepared his people that look, there's coming a day where as the witness for me goes out and the word of God goes out, the opposition will grow as well. And you need to be strong. You need to be filled with the Spirit of God. And the same truth, folks, is, is relevant today. If we're going to make an impact, if we're going to influence those around us, and we are going to be the witnesses that God calls us to be as His people, and to go public with the message of Jesus Christ, and not be ashamed, and have courage and boldness, we need to continually be filled with the Spirit of God. That's the key. Do nothing apart from the Spirit. Let him enable us and empower us. And then notice what he says, verse 8. Rulers of the people and elders. 
If we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man, by means this man was healed. By the way, isn't it interesting that Peter also points out, he says, well, this is interesting. I'm, I'm sort of being tried for doing a good deed. Don't you see something strange in that? In other words, they didn't do anything bad. They didn't commit a crime. They healed this lame man who had been lame for years. And somehow they're being interrogated and intimidated for that. And then he says, by means that this man was healed, I'll tell you, verse 10, let it be known, become intimately acquainted with all of you and to all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you healthy. He's saying through the Holy Spirit, You may have tried to kill Jesus Christ, but he is very much alive. And he is alive in and through us. And the reason why this man stands before you whole and sound and healed and cured is because of the power of Jesus Christ and the power and the authority in his name alone. Peter laid it right out there. And again, we can't appreciate the audience that he was standing before when he said that. If there would have ever been a group of people to a Jew that would have been intimidating to talk before, it would have been the Sanhedrin of Israel. And yet look at him. He's a transformed man. And that's what the Holy Spirit can do. That's the difference that the Holy Spirit can make in our lives. Notice something else. He also goes on to say, and your rejection of Jesus was actually predicted in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders that has become the cornerstone. He's saying Jesus fulfilled prophecy and your rejection as the religious leaders of Israel fulfilled prophecy. It was predicted long ago. But know this, Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. Now that's not a very popular teaching in the Bible. Never has been, never will be. Especially to those down through history who think that they can create their own way to God and their own way to heaven and that there are many ways to God and that there are many ways to heaven. That may... That may gain traction in our world today. That may sound really good and politically correct and all that, but it's not biblical. The biblical teaching of the Bible, if you want to be biblical, then the biblical teaching of the Bible is this. There is salvation in one alone, and that is Jesus Christ, period. There is salvation in no one else. There couldn't be. Who else but Jesus Christ could do what needed to be done? Was there any other world religious leader that could ever come and defeat death? Do you know of another religious leader who's now alive after dying? Have you seen proof of their resurrection and conquering death? Is there any other world religious leader who has ever had the power, the authority, the ability, the capacity, the resources to wipe out sin and forgive sin based upon faith alone? I don't know of anyone. And so Peter's saying, the the only one 
that can save is Jesus. And you here in Israel, especially, you need to acknowledge him as our Savior, as our Messiah. Now notice this. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, the word boldness here in the original language means free and fearless confidence and courage. In other words, they obviously you can tell they didn't hold anything back. They were unreserved in their speaking. They were just laying it out there. Let the chips fall where they may. They were speaking truth. Now I think they were doing it in love, but they were not holding back the truth. Because as Jesus taught them, only the truth can set people free. And if we're not willing to at times speak up and speak the truth, then men and women will never be set free. They recognized that boldness. And where did that boldness, that free and fearless confidence and courage come from? It came from the Holy Spirit, as we've already talked about. The filling of the Holy Spirit and the the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives gives us ability beyond ourselves. It gives us a courage and a confidence and a boldness beyond ourselves to do what on our own we would not do. And again, Peter is a great example of that. On his own, when he didn't think he needed to stay in the garden and pray and seek God's help and seek God's enablement and say, God, I've got this on my own, he fell flat on his face and he denied the Lord three times. But when he allowed the Holy Spirit to come into his life and fill him and take over and empower him and enable him, great things were able to be accomplished. And the same thing is true in our lives as well. When we try to live our Christian life on our own and witness on our own and do things on our own, we're going to fall flat on our face. But when we allow the Spirit of God to invade and take over, unbelievable things can be done beyond what we could ever imagine. Because there are no limits, as we've talked about even on Sunday, to what God can do through an open channel and an open vessel. So when they saw, verse 13, the boldness of Peter and John and discovered that they were uneducated and ordinary men. That goes back to the teaching. You see, in Israel at this time, you had to be on the official teacher list. You had to have certain letters by your name. You had to be trained at a certain school. You had to have certain criteria And if you didn't meet their criteria as the ruling body of Israel, then what are you doing teaching? Which goes back to the first verse. They were upset, not only that they were announcing the resurrection, they were upset that they were teaching the people. Because they weren't on the list of qualified teachers. They were common, ordinary people. How dare they teach anybody anything? In fact, they don't know enough to teach anybody anything. Can I tell you tonight, I hope that this would encourage everyone who hears the sound of my voice. If you're a Christian, don't let the fact that, you know, you haven't done this or haven't done this or whatever. And again, I'm not anti-education. 
I'm not anti-training and all that. I'm, I'm actually for it. And that's one of the reasons why I keep asking God to, you know, give us opportunities to train and get the Word of God out to more people in this community because I think the Word of God makes such a difference in our lives and especially as we can understand it more. But notice something here. When a person allows just God to be ruling in their life and the Holy Spirit to fill them, that God can take the common, ordinary, weak things of this world and He can confound the wise. That's what Paul says in the book of Corinthians. And that's what I want you to get tonight. You may look at yourself as just a common, ordinary person, but in the hands of the Almighty God, He can do anything and everything with you if you'll let Him. There's only one requirement to being an effective minister for Jesus Christ, and it's here in verse 13. They were amazed and recognized that these men had what? Verse 13. Been with Jesus. That's the one essential requirement to be an effective minister. They'd been with Jesus. They had been... They had fellowshiped and... They'd been with Jesus. And notice, these people were able to perceive that they had been with Jesus. I think the same thing is true today. When you and I spend time with Jesus, when we hang out with Him and let Him speak to us and fill us with His Word and fill us with His Spirit and, and, and we get that communion time and, and that precious time with Jesus... We notice the difference, and I think others do as well. No different than it was 2,000 years ago. And I don't care how trained, how many degrees someone has beside their name. If they're not being with Jesus, then all that training and all that education isn't going to matter in the here and now. Because the most important thing with all the training and with all the experience and with all the opportunities that God gives us to grow and to mature and to grow in our understanding and learning and all that, which is important, is to never stop being with Jesus. That's the number one essential requirement. And because they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, They had nothing to say against this. Notice, they could not refute the miracle. Which shows how corrupt their hearts were. Because notice, let's go on. When they had ordered them to go outside the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what should we do with these men? For it is plain to all, it is evident, it is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable, miraculous sign has come about through them. So notice... They can't deny the miracle. And yet, even though God is trying to reach out to them through the miracle, their hearts are so hard that they're going to try to, even though they can't deny the miracle, instead of letting the miracle then speak to them and change them, no, we're going to try to shut these guys up. That's how corrupt the human heart is. So, they say, to keep this matter, verse 17, from spreading any further among the people, 
let us warn or threaten or intimidate them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Always comes back to the name of Jesus Christ. There's something about His name. And they called them in and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John replied, whether it is right before God to obey you rather or more than God, you decide. In other words, Peter's saying, as the leaders of Israel, you're going to be accountable for God for whatever your decision is. If you think that somehow we should obey you more than God, that's on your head. You'll answer for that one day, Peter said. But it is impossible, Peter said. For us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. And this word impossible is a really key word here in Acts 4. It means to have come to a settled state of mind. In other words, Peter is saying we as the followers of Jesus Christ, as the, as the church here in Acts, most of us have come to a settled state of mind. Th- this has been settled. It's not a question anymore of will we witness Will we tell others about Jesus? Will we say to others, He's alive and and to repent and to believe in His name because there's salvation in no one else? No, that's been settled. That's why we, it's impossible for us not to say something because it's been settled. And I love that because what Peter here is giving us is great insight into, in a sense, his own growth and the growth of the early believers and why they've gotten to this point and why many today have not gotten to this point yet in their Christian life. Because they still haven't gotten to a place where that was settled. And that's why we need to continue to let God work in our lives and grow us and speak to us and move us along. Because God, I think, wants all of his people to get to a place exactly where Peter and John and the other followers got to. Where they say, you can tell me not to do what God's told me to do, but at this point in my Christian walk and my relationship with God, it would be impossible for me not to do what God's called me to do. And I'll just let the chips fall where they may. You want to stone me? You want to put me in prison? You want to, you want to kill me? You want to do it? But I have gotten to a place where that is settled. What has been settled in our lives? And then after threatening them further, verse 21, they released them for they could not find how to punish them on account of the people. By the way, I love this word punish in the Greek language. It means to cut down the size. It literally was a word that the Greeks used for a dwarf. In other words, think about it. It's not so much punish them. It's, it's, it's the religious leaders. See, the followers of Jesus were growing in a sense in stature amongst the people of Israel. And, and they were jealous because the religious leaders of Israel, they wanted to be the big shots. They wanted to be the ones that people put on pedestals. And now all of a sudden, things are being reversed. And, and the followers of Jesus Christ are gaining stature and they're growing in the eyes of the people. And what that's going to mean is then the religious leaders of Sanhedrin are starting to shrink in the eyes of the people. And they couldn't stand that. Because their pride was like, 
We want to be number one. We want people to look at us. We want people to look to us. And we are upset that people are looking to anyone else other than us. They're religious leaders for the answers to anything spiritual or otherwise. Well, notice what happens. It says they could not punish them on account of the people because they, all the people, were praising God for what had happened. They were having a worship time and a praise time and they couldn't cut through that either. For the man on whom this miraculous sign of healing had been performed was over 40 years old. It was just, again, a notable miracle that they could not refute. Well, let's move on now in the few minutes we have left to see what happened after this great pushback from the religious leaders of Israel. We see how it got to that point through them willing to go public and willing to be filled by the Spirit and to be bold and all of these things. We've seen that. But now I want you to see something equally important. I want you to see how the early Christians handled this and again, how it drew them together. It not only drew them to God, It not only caused the witness to even be stronger. 5,000 men were saved. If 5,000 men were saved, how many women and children? Thousands of people were being saved in spite of the opposition. These are some of the reasons why God allows His people to be in a hostile environment. Because there really is something to it. So notice what happens. What was the first thing they did when they were released? Verse 23. Peter and John went to their fellow believers. By the way, these words fellow believers mean to belong to one another, to be connected. In other words, it wasn't a question of would they go. That's where they were going to go because that's where they belonged. Yeah, they were called to be a witness to the world, but they didn't belong out there. They didn't have a lot in common out there. But they knew that they needed to go out there to shine their light. But then after a time like this, they also knew that they needed to sort of huddle together and encourage and support one another and pray for one another and worship together and whatever and encourage each other so that they could go back out. Because that's who they belonged to. That's who they were connected to. And that's why I encourage Christians today to be part of a, of a church or a group of Christians where you know you belong and you're connected with them. Because that's exactly what the early church was like in the book of Acts. They went to their fellow believers and reported everything the high priests and the elders had said to them. Even Peter and John, the great disciples of the Lord, didn't do this on their own. They went to their fellow believers because they they knew they needed each other. And God was using this persecution to draw His people together. And notice, when they heard this, they raised their voices to God. The word raised means to be drawn to. They were drawn to God and they were drawn to pray. But notice, they were drawn to pray with one mind. It's a great word. It's used 11 times in the New Testament, 9 times in the book of Acts. It, it, 
it could be translated one passion. But it, it was a word that was used in 2,000 years ago in, in musical circles. It was used of a great orchestra, if you will, or group of instruments harmonizing with one another. That even though they all had their separate instrument to play, that when they came together and and they worked together, the great harmony, if you will, that could be brought about when they came together. It's a great word. And it's the way the early Christians thought of each other. There was great unity was there. I mean, it's hard-pressed today in our modern society to find a group of Christians ever that have one mind over something. Which is why we probably don't get as much accomplished as they did in the book of Acts. Because part of the reason why is because we can't come together as with one passion and one purpose and work towards one common goal. Everyone in the church has their own sort of selfish agenda. And so we all sort of out there doing our own thing rather than being willing to lay aside our, our selfish agenda and what we want for the greater good. And that wasn't true in the book of Acts. They were willing to come together with one mind. And notice, the very first thing they said was master. Now this isn't the usual word that they use to address God. This is the Greek word despotes where we get the word despot from. But what it means is is not only the one who's Lord, but the one who rules over all. The one whose power cannot be questioned. The one who is in control. And that's what the early church also recognized. That in spite of this persecution, in spite of the opposition, in spite of all that they were going through, God was still in control. He was still the ruler of this universe. And they never lost sight of that. In fact, notice what they're saying here. Master of all, you who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, everything that is in them, who said by the Holy Spirit through your servant David, our forefather, why do the nations rage, the peoples plot foolish things? He's quoting there from Psalm 2, and he's quoting about the futility of people who try to fight against God. And basically, Psalm 2 is just teaching the the people of of the world It's futile to fight against God. There's no one stronger than God. And if you find yourself on the other side facing God, you're going to lose every time. Then verse 27, For indeed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together in this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do as much as your power and your plan had decided beforehand would happen. And now I love this. Notice again how they respond to the opposition, how they respond to the impediment, the challenge, the obstacle. Do they pray to God when they get the chance, God, take the persecution away. Take this challenge away. Take this obstacle away. Take this hard time I'm going through away. Is that what they pray? No. No, here's what they pray. Lord, Pay attention to their threats and grant to your servants to speak your message with great courage, boldness. In other words, we're not asking you, God, 
to make it easier. That's not what we're asking you, God. We're asking you, God, to grant your servants the strength to rise to the occasion and rise to the challenge and be as bold and courageous as we need to be in spite of the opposition. Wow. See, today, because of weakness within the body of Christ, Many of us and many churches, our first reaction when we have a challenge or an obstacle or an impediment or something hard comes, the first thing we God, please take that away. Make it easier, God. Instead of praying as the early church did, God, grant me the ability to rise to the occasion. Grant me the courage and the strength to meet whatever challenges out there. That was their prayer. While you extend your hand to heal, verse 30, and to bring about miraculous signs and wonders, again, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. It was moving. God was moving. Physically, literally, spiritually. He was moving in His people. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began what? To speak the Word of God courageously. What a response of the people of God. Coming together. Being drawn to God. Drawn to one another. And not asking for things to be easier, but for them to have the strength to rise above it and to meet the challenge. What a great example to us. And then I want you to see, not only again, the further unity in this last paragraph as I close, but I want you to see the deep care and love they had for each other. And many people misunderstand what was happening here. This wasn't like all the Christians in the early church all of a sudden sold all their possessions and none of them had anything that they could call their own. What this meant was that as a true need came up in the body, that there would be times where this family or this Christian would step up and say, hey, I've got the ability to meet that need in my brother and sister. Let me get rid of it and share it with them. That was the picture painted here. So notice, verse 32, the group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. Again, one passion, one purpose. And no one said that any of the possessions that he had was his own. In other words, as the song we sing many times, they lived with an open hand. They didn't live trying to keep a hold of what God gave them. They looked at everything that God blessed them with as an opportunity to bless someone else. So they lived with open hands. That's simply what they were doing here. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on them all. For there was no one needy among them because those who were owners of land or houses were selling them and bringing the proceeds from the sales, placing them at the apostles' feet, letting the apostles distribute it as they saw fit to anyone who had notice a need. It had to be a necessity. It couldn't be just someone said, hey, I'd like this. And someone else said, oh, you'd like that? Okay. No, this was a need. This was food. This was clothing. This was a true necessity. 
And the early church had the heart and the love and the care for each other that they made sure that if you were part of our body, we're connected. And if one is hurting, then we're all hurting. And we're going to make sure somehow, some way, that need gets met within the body of Christ. And then they use a specific example. Joseph, a Levite who was a native of Cyprus, called by the apostles Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money and placed it at the apostles' feet. I hope Acts chapter 4 will encourage you because we live in a world where the church and God's people are going to be opposed. There's going to be impediments. There's going to be challenges in our way. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be mountains to climb. There's going to be, you know, rivers to, to navigate through. And we have got to develop the mindset that the early church had. Not looking at all these things as somehow God is against us, as we talked about Sunday, but that God is for us. And in these rising above these challenges and overcoming them all, is actually there's a fulfillment and a satisfaction that we could never gain if everything was just made easy for us and laid out there for us. And what we need truly is to be filled with the Spirit so that we have the courage and boldness to be the witnesses we need to be and realize that in spite of the opposition, the Word of God will go forth. It will continue to change lives in spite of the opposition and that we will be drawn to God and to one another. And can I end with this just to blow you away because it blew me away speaking about giving and generosity? Cindy was sharing with Lisa and I that we had just shy Sunday of a $14,000 offering on Sunday. A church of a couple hundred people, really? You folks are amazing. Thank you for being faithful and for being so giving and generous. Um, I can't wait to see what the Lord has planned for us with the money that we're being able to accumulate for whatever God has ahead. Thanks for being here tonight, too. I know it was a rough day weather-wise, and many of our folks around the valley need our prayers. They've lost their homes. They've lost their cars. Uh, So it was a rough day, but I'm glad you guys could make it out, and I I hope tonight was encouragement for you. Don't forget Sunday, 10 o'clock sharp. Let's be there. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these early believers. And God, even though they were far from perfect, they were, they were common, ordinary people like us. Lord, we can be so encouraged that, that when they allowed Your Spirit to come in and fill them, God, they were, they were just a whole different kind of people than they were in the Gospels. You take the example of Peter just by himself and you can see the transformation that takes place in his life. So God, help us to see that that we don't have to be someone other than what we are. We just have to let our lives be in your hands and let your spirit take over our lives. And you'll give us anything and everything we need, Lord, to be your effective witnesses in the world in which you have placed us. You promise us that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. So God, help us, even as this little local church, the Oasis, to rise up and be the witnesses bold and courageous and strong that you've called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you. And by the way, thanks for all your prayers on my behalf after last week and my accident. I really do appreciate it. Thank you.